And welcome to another UbuWeb Poetry Foundation podcast, all avant-garde, all the time. I'm Kenneth Goldsmith, founding editor of UbuWeb, which can be found at ubu.com. You know, I love interviews, and we have got tons of them on UbuWeb. And it's amazing to listen to these people try to explain their work in their own words. Sometimes they're fabulously misleading, as in the case of Salvador Dali, who is surrealistically uninformed about his own practice, as opposed to somebody like John Cage, who is always right on target. And in this podcast, I'd like to draw your attention to some of the uh, various archives of interviews that we have up on UberWeb, as well as to point you in the direction of some of the very best ones. One of the earliest interviews on the UberWeb archive is an interview from 1934, and this is Gertrude Stein being interviewed at the Algonquin Hotel upon her arrival into America. This was from November of 1934. And she's being quizzed by a journalist as to what exactly does she mean by her work. You're coming to the United States to lecture, Miss Stein. Implies that there are many people who will be able to comprehend your ideas. Look here. Being intelligible is not what it seems. You mean by understanding that you can talk about it in the way that you have the habit of talking, putting it in other words. But I mean by understanding enjoyment. If you enjoy it, you understand it. And lots of people have enjoyed it, so lots of people have understood it. And what's incredible to hear is Stein's talking voice is so similar to the way that she reads. Now, we've got a lot of her readings up on UberWeb, and it sounds almost identical. And her words just become big blocks to stumble over. You can't really understand what she's saying. It's how she's saying it. And even in normal conversation, how she says it is particularly stunning. And as untied, and as tied, and as untied, and as decided. Well, just look at those words. The words look like Carl Van Anybody can know that. Besides, they mean Carl Van Dixon. Anybody can know that. Well, that's rather hard for us normal Americans to see. What is a normal American? There are lots of quite normal who do see. And how. But after all, you must enjoy my writing. And if you enjoy it, you understand it. If you did not enjoy it, why do you make a fuss about it? There is the real answer. I'm not at all in accord with this business of making me a classic. Of French painting. This is a uh, great interview with Marcel Duchamp, recorded in London in 1959. The interviewer was the pop artist Richard Hamilton. And the word artist also is a conception that I tried to get out of in the first place. And it is the most enigmatic artist of the century, explaining himself in the most elegant and easily understandable English. If I'm not a dada, in the 1916 sense, I at least have something in common with the attitude of a rabelais, of a jarry, in my way of looking at... That's the paradox of Duchamp. 
His ideas were so complicated, and yet he explained them so elegantly and so easily as if anybody could understand it. Why couldn't anybody understand it? But of course, it was all just a play to lead you the other way, away from the work. And everything that Duchamp would say, everybody would hang on and say, but no, that's not true. There's got to be more to it than that. And that's the paradox of Duchamp. In spite of the fact that one thinks of you as sitting uh, right on top of Cubism, you felt a need after just one or two years of experience of Cubism that you wanted to find a new path for yourself. Richard Hamilton, who would emerge in the early 60s, just a few years after this interview, was a Duchamp scholar working at the ICA, London's Institute of Contemporary Arts. And it allowed him time to delve into the enigmas of Marcel Duchamp. As a matter of fact, he published a typographic version of Duchamp's Green Box, which uh, comprised Duchamp's original notes for the design and construction of uh, his large glass. That's talked about in the interview as well. The source of it, as I said, was Roussel, who gave me the idea of inventing new men, so to speak, new beings, whether made of metal or of flesh. The bride is a sort of Mechanical bride, if you want to say. It's not the bride itself. It's a concept of a bride. You have to remember that during this period, Duchamp was a respirateur. He was a breather. He was doing nothing. He was doing no art. And this led, just a few years after this, to a uh, large revolution saying, the silence of Marcel Duchamp is overstated. As we all know, he was working on Etan Donnet, his secret room-sized installation the entire time, which was revealed just after his death. We're going to have a wonderful time with William Carlos Williams because I've been talking about him on this program for years. This is and a uh, really warm and wonderful piece of radio, almost radio nostalgia, with William Carlos Williams appearing on a radio show on WJZ Radio on December 4th of 1950. And it's a, a long conversation between Williams and the first lady of radio, as she was known, Mary Margaret McBride. I'll bet you know some of those little ones. During this interview, you can hear Williams recite A Black, Black Cloud and The Red Wheelbarrow. Well, there is one called The Red Wheelbarrow that people seem to enjoy. Do The Red Wheelbarrow. You'd like The Red Wheelbarrow. Yes, I would. Let me see if I can really remember it. It's... Um, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. <laughs> and he talks about what he was thinking when he wrote it and how he was challenged as to its meaning. And when asked really what it means, he says, well, it just is. It means what it is. Don't think too hard about it. And I suppose, as with most artists or those who consider themselves artists, most of the work really is as Mr. Freud would say, or Dr. Freud, subconscious. I say unconscious. It comes out. He talks a lot no, about the, the values of, of the unconscious, how, how he trusts the unconscious. He talks about Freud. He talks about the importance of pleasure. And he also talks about the role that the ego plays in his work. I and mean, he's plain-spoken, like the good doctor that he was. He's interested in the beauty of the common, the beauty of every day. This is easy conversation. Could you define the word paranoiac? Don't try to understand this interview. You won't. Uh, is one, uh, the name is, uh, 
paranoia critical method, because it's one spontaneous method of knowledge based in the instantaneous association of delirious material. This is Salvador Dali, recorded in 1963 in conversation with David Bryson. My method instantaneously creates this miracle. Dali uh, rambles on and on, speaking incomprehensibly in three languages. But even in English, he's bizarre and hard to understand. He covers topics such as subjectivity, neurosis, dream states, geology, paradox, eccentricity. He talks about the uh, beauty of landscapes, the paranoiac imagination, and his own delirious existence. He defines his mustache as a metallic phallus and uh, goes on to say that I am eccentric and concentric. At the end of the interview, uh, it's pretty fabulous. He's asked sort of off the mic by uh, David Bryson about his mustache, and he says, in the night... He cleans it, and it droops down while he sleeps. And then three minutes after he wakes up, it goes erect, and he can then face the world. So at night it droops down completely, while you're sleeping. Completely. And then in the morning, up she goes again. Three minutes. Only in three minutes, fix my mustache. And then you feel you can face the world with that one form of mustache standing up. Yes, because uh, every day becoming much more practical for my inspiration. But I'm fascinated to know that. There's a lot of Salvador Dali on UbuWeb. There's a, uh, if you like this kind of conversation, there's an entire PDF book, a conversation from 1969 with uh, Alain Bousquet, and it goes on and on and on in the most incomprehensible ways. And there's also a very rare video by Dali called Impressions de la Haute Mongolie, a uh, homage to Raymond Roussel. And uh, it's a very rarely seen uh, film by Dali, where uh, you join Dali on a trip to the remote land of Mongolia in search of the great white mushroom. It's my very great pleasure to introduce, in French, one would say, vous présentez, Jacques Derrida. In contrast to Dali, you've got the very understandable and very rational interview with Jacques Derrida. Prayer, on the one hand, has to be the way I understand it. A mixture of something absolutely singular and secret that is idiomatic, untranslatable, and at the same time, a ritual that is involving the body in coded gestures, in common language, in in an intelligible language. So there's this mixture of between uh, a secret and sacred idiom and some common ritual in which the body uh, 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 accepts to, to, uh, to uh, make coded gestures. This is from 2002 at a joint annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Bible Literature. And it's a very, I find it to be an extremely moving and beautiful uh, interview with Derrida where he's talking about his relationship to Judaism and his relationship to God. But of course, with Derrida, it goes further. It goes into uh, religious and political crises in the Middle East. Just a short time after this interview uh, was recorded, it was made public that 
Derrida would be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which meant that this would really be one of his last major appearances before his death. And you can really hear in his discussion about religion, there's sort of a sense of urgency. And it, it really, you can hear that Derrida knew that his time was short. While obeying God, you must give up any justification, any human intelligible justification. You have to uh, give up any knowledge. So the, the, the leap, what one calls the leap of Abraham, is a leap beyond knowledge, beyond ethics, beyond social bonds, beyond love, beyond love, out of love, because God says, the one you love. So that's the, the, the absolute religious experience, if there is such a thing. The pure act of faith, the asymmetrical obedience to an absurd order, an unintelligible order, beyond ethics, knowledge, and so on and so forth. Derrida talks about the limits of language, the desire, even the need to say the unsayable, but also knows, in a Wittgensteinian sense, that words will always fail in the end, and ends up by saying, that's why being a believer, even a mystic believer, and being an atheist is not necessarily a different state of affairs. One of Uberweb's partners is the anthology Film Archive, located in Lower Manhattan, and they provided us with about a dozen classic interviews running from the early 60s to the mid-70s. And in the anthology section of UberWeb, you can hear things such as Jonas Mikas interviewing Emil D'Antonio, Annette Michelson from October interviewing Yvonne Rayner, and a wonderful conversation from the early 60s between Pauline Kael and Stan Brackage. There's many, many hours of uh, great interviews about film at ubu.com slash sound slash afa.html. We're going to give excerpts of two interviews uh, in this podcast. One is an amazing interview recorded in 1965 at the Chelsea Hotel with a young P. Adam Sidney, the film historian, interviewing the filmmaker, artist, ethnomusicologist, and alchemist Harry Smith. That first film, was made, as I said, by, by like... Uh the imprint of the cork off the ink bottle and all that kind of thing. Then the second one is, was made from something like come clean gum dots that uh, were like automatic adhesive dots that were put on to the film. It's a two-part uh, discussion, and in the first part, Smith discusses his uh, growing up. He discusses Berkeley and dope, his influences. And in the second part, he talks about his own films, which are just incredible. Um, he talks about his work on a film adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, all the lost films, the borrowed and pawned and stolen cameras, his ethnomusicology, his Native American dance interest, and the relationship of his painting to music and sound. Then, with the tweezers, this dot was pulled off. That's where those, like, balls drop and that sort of uh -huh. stuff. Those are, like, dots that... All handmade on the... Yeah. On the 35 millimeter. On 35 millimeter. Harry Smith was a key member of New York's avant-garde and bohemian community. He was a wonderful abstract filmmaker. And later, he won a Grammy Award posthumously for his work on the American folk anthology, 
for Folkways Records, what's known as the greatest collection of American folk music. He was a mystic. He was a friend of Ginsburg. He was a friend of Burroughs. He was an, uh, an inspiration uh, to many, many people, Harry Smith. Why did you go from painting into film? I was... Um couldn't remember exactly. This is uh, Robert Heller interviewing the feminist artist Carolee Schneeman. This was recorded on November 30th of 1973. I think it was that I had been working with Collage. Schneeman already 15 years into being a pioneering and groundbreaking feminist artist with her performances such as Meat Joy, which is an orgy held on stage with naked people rolling around with hunks of meat groaning and shouting. Uh, that can be seen on Uberweb's film section, as well as a few of Carolee's other films, a beautiful thing called Fuses, which is her and her then-lover James Tenney uh, embracing over hand-painted films. In uh, the late 50s, I did a whole piece using images, photographic images shot by Julia, uh, Julia Margaret Cameron with Jim Tenney's underwear and built uh, the work somehow around that discontinuity of, of materials. Were you at all inspired by Joseph Cornell? Because you had met him around this time, I believe. Well, I, or yes, influenced. Yes, I was, I was very inspired by him. I met him after I had been in New York a year, so I was already doing boxes and construction. She and knew everybody. She knew Joseph Cornell. She met Maya Darren. She worked with Stan Brackage and, of course, was very intimate with another great female filmmaker Marie Mankin. In this uh, interview, she talks extensively on being a woman artist and what it meant because Carolee Schneeman was one of the few pioneering women in a field dominated by men. She said, I don't identify my work with women's work. I identify my situation with a woman's situation. Another great Uberweb collection of interviews and music is a series called Music with Roots in the Ether, put together by the composer Robert Ashley. It's devoted two hours to each artist, and the first hour is an interview with each of the artists, and the second hour is a performance, a musical performance that demonstrates exactly what they were talking about in the interviews. Do you feel, as in, in, the situa- in exactly the situation you're in now, do you feel somehow lighter than you felt before? Lighter? Lighter, yes. Or more substantial or less, you know what I mean? Um, being, being in the interview situation, being in this situation, uh, yeah. uh, operations uh, are being performed. Yes. Yeah, there's a performance going on yes. up outside of what we're engaged in. Yes. And um, um, I can I can feel myself changing. Yes. I can feel myself changing inside as we talk. In this interview, we're listening to Pauline Oliveras, who really is the godmother of American avant-garde music. Pauline Oliveras was born in 1932 in Houston, Texas, and uh, made her way to the Bay Area where she became involved in electronic music, the only woman 
who was making electronic music with the guys in the studio. She made beautiful recordings, but being a woman, while well, all these other guys were putting out record after record after record, Pauline Oliveris, and she says this, because she was a woman, had to wait until she was 50 years old in 1982 to get her first recording. Well, she's been making up for that ever since, and she's got literally dozens and dozens of records out now. Uh, it's amazing to listen to her wisdom. It's amazing to listen to her Eastern view on things in this interview. Pauline is a black belt in martial arts. She runs deep listening seminars where she teaches you how to hear the world differently. And in this interview, she talks about how to listen and how to listen very carefully and very intensely. Gradually, I became more and more interested in the process of, of listening. And listening so as I was a part, uh, almost. She's a builder. She's a community builder. She gathers people around her and enlightens them through sound. And as I say, trying to lose my intention in order to find a different mode. So that there came a point where I realized that that was what was taking place. Indeed. And it was different. It was different territory. Robert Ashley says that Music with Roots in the Ether is a series of interviews with seven composers who seemed to me, when I conceived of the project, and who still seem to me 25 years later to be among the most important, influential, and active members of the so-called avant-garde movement in American music, a movement that had its origins in the work of and in the stories about composers who started hearing things in a new way at least 50 years ago. So what he does here is in 1973 to 1975, he interviews these seven composers. And they're wonderful interviews. David Berriman, Pauline Oliveris, Philip Glass, Terry Riley, Alvin Lussier, Gordon Muma, and there's also a uh, segment of Robert Ashley uh, speaking about his own work and doing a performance. We have a great 16-part series of 45-minute broadcast and interviews which asks an honest question. Is there really a place on radio for experimentation? This was put together by radio producer Martin Spinelli, and it really is an incredible series that includes such radio artists like John Oswald, uh, Pierce Plowright, Gregory Whitehead, and what we're going to hear from now is Paul D. Miller, also known as DJ Spooky. I always like to consider DJ music as the new folk music. I mean, it's essentially something where everyone has access to certain ideas and can just kind of flip it around like that. That's how folk music used to be back in the day. You know, these days it's all turntables, computers, MP3 files, uh, AIFF files, and so on and so on. Of course, DJ Spooky is a writer, visual artist. He's been a platinum-selling recording artist. And uh, his mixes blend black radio and cartoon soundtracks with vintage uh, recordings of Thomas Edison and Eric Satie and John Cage. I've seen him once perform and do the electronics with Giannis Zanakis live. He talks about mix as metaphor, and in this interview... It's about building bridges between cultures. Mixing is a metaphor for building bridges. Uh, he talks a great length about his different collaborations 
and how to bridge DJ culture and classical music. He says that... I'm thinking of sampling as dematerialized sculpture. So well, when you press play and some frequencies come out of your speaker, you know, um, so I'm playing with a lot of these the sculpture as a way of looking at collage and the ideas, and of course, issues to draw people into uh, a multi-interaction environment. The funny thing is, of course, it's a reflection of how the world but again, actually the is. perception of art is one thing, mass culture is another thing, music is one thing, writing these are is another all thing. Issues that once things become digital, everything is mixable. And I like the idea of using the metaphor of mixed culture to, um, you know, that's the real break it all American, down and just American you know dream, what, it's a swirling maelstrom, like pick your fragments the mix, the melting pot, all that kind of stuff. DJ culture perhaps is the subconscious of that. That's how I view it, you know. It's rich episodes that Martin's put together here. They're not just interviews. But what Martin tries to do in each interview is that he tries to demonstrate what they're talking about by using the techniques that they're speaking of in the mixes. So with DJ Spooky, what he does is he begins, while Spooky's talking, to mix other things on top of him, sometimes to the point where Paul Miller is inaudible. It's showing the potential of mixing as just in general, I mean, who wants to think about all the fragments and, like, the little splices and stuff? Nobody, really. It's just kind of... But I like the idea of playing with that and making it become pop. Don't, don't believe, believe, Est-ce que c'était un, un bon tableau, celui-là, qui correspond à ce que vous attendez de cette transformation toute récente qui va du conceptual art This is a 1970 conceptual interview with the artist Marcel Broders, but Broders himself is not being interviewed, no. It's Marcel Broders interviewing his cat about fine art. Or it could be that the cat is interviewing Broders. At any rate, it's a great conversation. It lasts about five minutes, and it was recorded in Joseph Boyce's backyard at the uh, Conceptual Museum of Eagles in Dusseldorf that uh, Broders invented. Marcel Broders began as a poet. He spent 20 years trying to get somewhere, and realizing that he wasn't going to get anywhere, he made this great statement. He said, I too wondered whether I could not sell something and succeed in life. For some time, I hadn't been good at anything. I'm 40 years old. Finally, the idea of inventing something insincere finally crossed my mind, and I set to work straight away. So he began to go into the art world. His very first sculpture was all of his old books of poetry that were stuffed into a big pile of plaster. And he sold it, and he was on his way as a conceptual artist. He did very, very well. He ended up in Documenta 5 in Castle in 1972 and began uh, making his own museums. The Museum of Eagles was just that. It was just a collection of eagles in a little storefront. Uh, it, it could be anywhere. It was in Dusseldorf. He had one in Belgium. He made beautiful constructions of everyday materials. 
And in this interview with the cat, he's discussing modern art. And it's not that different from his pal Joseph Boys, who sat in a gallery and tried to explain modern art to a dead rabbit. But in fact, this time, the cat responds back. This is a pipe. Meow. This is not a pipe. Meow. Lionel Casson. Thanks so much for joining us today on the UberWeb podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you here as well, Lionel. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in boats? Well, when I was a youngster, I think, when I was no more than about 10 years old, I made a boat of my own. I lived near the sea. I, I live in New York City. I was born in New York City, and we lived in a, in a part of the city where I could get to the, to the beach in just a few moments, and I built myself a 12-foot outboard motorboat, as I say, when I was about 12 years old, and that started me on it. I just kept going from then on. On the topic of conceptual interviews is something called an open-end interview. Illustrated History of Ships and Boats. This is something that famous authors would do back in the day. They would send out their responses to questions, and then the journalist could put it together with their questions in the studio, and you'd have a full interview. Since these guys were going to say the same thing in every interview, might as well just say it and let each journalist insert his voice into the questions. This is from 1964, and it's called a fill-in-the-blanks interview. It was issued on a seven-inch piece of vinyl, and it's interview responses from the eminent maritime historian Lionel Casson. It was uh, sent out to promote his 1964 book, Illustrated History of Ships and Boats. And uh, side two is entirely room tone, so that you could become in the same room with Lionel Casson himself and sound like you were in the room with him. Up on Uberweb, we've got both. We've got the interview and the room tone. You could put it together yourself. I remember once being in Italy and uh, st- staying at a seaside, and I had a hotel room with a seaside view. This can be found on the uh, 365 Days Project section of Uberweb, a collection of very strange recordings. So... Um, <clears throat> The joke that uh, Dan Weinberg. But who told you? Gary told me. This is a uh, conversation slash interview of two very well-known artists of the 1980s, Richard Prince and Bob Gober. At the time, uh, Richard Prince was in the midst of making his joke paintings, and those are blank canvases that have nothing on them but a very dumb joke. And you'd walk into a room or a gallery, and see dumb joke after dumb joke after dumb joke. Yeah, a guy walks into a doctor's office. So this is simply an audio version of two great artists sitting around telling each other versions of jokes. Gets the checkup, and the doctor comes out of the office. He says, uh, you know, I got good news and bad news. Uh, And the the doctor says, well, the bad news is, um, you know, you're going to die within a year, and unfortunately... You're going to die an excruciating death. And there's no cure, no drugs, no help. But the good news is, is that I'm having an affair with my secretary. <laughs> <laughs> let, me try retel- let me try retelling okay. it. Okay. That's the way I heard it. Right. And that's really right. awful. It's pretty close. Oh, it's a great joke because it's so real, I think. In a sense, oh, it was uh, Richard right Prince's now. idea it's of terrible. the end of painting. When painting... 
gets to be this tired, the only thing that you can do is put a joke on it. And in a way, it really is related to Marcel Broder's interview with the cat, because when there's nothing left to talk about in painting, when every move has been made, the only response is meow. The doctor says, well, you have a very short time. It is terminal. You have a very short time to live. There's nothing we can do, and you're going to die an excruciating death. And the patient says, wow, well, Jesus, what's the good news? The doctor says, well, I'm having an affair with my secretary. (laughs) Beautiful. Versions of jokes are like versions of paintings. I'm going to make one painting, and then I'm going to make another version of it. So it's a correspondence between language, between humor, the play of semiotics, and the play of really what is an endgame of painting. Richard Prince, of course, was very famous as one of the first appropriation artists. He would take images from mass media and isolate them out of their context, such as the Marlboro Man, and just re-photograph a picture of the Marlboro Man on the back of a horse in a beautiful American landscape and present it as a photograph of a great American icon. Don't you? Maybe. That that may very well be, but... uh... Don't you? Maybe. That that may very well be, but... uh... Don't you? Maybe. The figure of John Cage was inspirational to generations of artists. And in this case, this is the artist Nicholas Einhorn, born in 1940, a a concrete poet and a sound poet. And he took the voice of John Cage and looped it. This is actually John Cage, and he's being interviewed by a German radio broadcaster named Hans G. Helms. That may very well be, but don't you? Maybe. That may very well be, but don't you? Maybe. That may very well be, but don't you? Basically, what he's doing here is he's making a minimalist composition out of the interview play and the cadences and repetitions of Cage's and Helms's voices. It goes on for five minutes just like this, and after a while you begin to lose the sense of the words and you begin to get involved in the rhythms and how they're saying it and the tones. It's a way of making language uh, abstract, also making it concrete, meaning anything but what it's supposed to mean. So in a sense... It's the interview as a method of musical composition. That, that may very well be, but... We're going to cheat just a little bit here. And because of the uh, figure of John Cage and also because of the conceptual nature of things, I want to play a little clip from a film that was made in 1978 between John Cage being interviewed by a uh, man named Richard Costellanitz, who has laryngitis. Now I have to count the This is Richard Costellanitz. I have laryngitis. But thanks to the wonders of technology, my voice is amplified into something you can hear. I'm with John Cage. He's just beginning a new piece. What is it called, John? 40, 41. Just a second. Okay. 
in this line in Finnegan's Wake that the text will be called um, writing for the third time through Finnegan's Wake. So therefore it follows something for the second time and for the first time. Right. Now, normally, uh, if the interviewer has laryngitis, the interview would be canceled. But in the Cajun manner of things, John Cage proceeds as if nothing is wrong. So you hear Castellanitz whispering, and Cage just sort of going about doing his business as if this is the condition, and I've got to accustom myself to that condition. It's a great interview. It's really, really engaging. It's very rare from 75. And it's just totally absurd to listen to this guy whisper his questions heatedly and passionately. You know what an acrostic is? Right. The name down the edge. But a misostic is the name down the middle. Okay, which you've done before in right. the M book. Right. For the misostics from Bruce Cunningham. Right. And then I made them for the name of Marcel Duchamp and Mark Toby and so on. But these are, these are on the name James Joyce. After all the uh, jokes that we've just been making about John Cage, he really is a font of knowledge and wisdom. And there's a couple of great interviews with him up on UberWeb. And perhaps my favorite and the most substantial is a two-part interview. This was the question and answer session from his Charles Eliot Norton lectures that were delivered at Harvard in 1988 and 1989. I have nothing planned, so uh, I understand that some of you have questions or maybe statements to which I will respond. We've also got the performances, which the lectures were, were, were given, and it's hard to actually call them lectures. They were performances. They were misostic readings, a literary form generated by... Chance And so Cage goes through his ideas in a very Cagean and somewhat musical way. But then, in the question and answer session, it's a grounded interview with Cage about how he actually made his work. Um, one of the things that he talks about is his silent piece. And this is one of the first questions he's answered. They said, John Cage, how did you come up with four minutes and 33 seconds? Was it a spontaneous creation that something that came well, out of the night? I don't you? know that. I don't think that in this kind of work that spontaneous is, is, a, is the word. I think that um, I didn't know I was writing 433, but I didn't spontaneously say it was 433. I built it up very it up. gradually, and it came out to be 433, and I just might have made a mistake in addition. <laughs> so I think I was thinking of, like, whimsical or something, I don't, maybe rather than spontaneous, but... What were you thinking about? In other words, if I were to say, was it was this something that was kind of whimsical? I mean, in other oh, words... was it a joke, you mean? Yeah, I mean, like... What I mean, like, is, let's at six o'clock that evening of the of the night that you created it. Were you thinking that tonight I'm going to create a, a new piece, or did suddenly? No, no, no. it took several days several to days. write, and it took me several years to come to the to the uh, decision to make it. And I've lost I lost friends over it. That's that's what I was. And he goes and he talks about how the element of courage was what was needed. And it took him 10 years to get the courage up to actually make and perform 
the silent piece. And it's, it's, it's enlightening, to say the least. And as a matter of fact, when 4 minutes and 33 seconds was first performed, people didn't know what to think. You're sitting in silence for 4 minutes and 33 seconds for years and years, and no orchestra would play a real version of that. Sometimes a, a trombonist would lift up his trombone in the middle of the silence and play a few notes of Camptown Races, and everybody would laugh and applaud. But today it's not uncommon. As a matter of fact, on UberWeb there is a BBC... Uh, film of a London orchestra performing with all seriousness, four minutes and 33 seconds. So you can actually learn by listening to this question and answer session, the struggles that John Cage had in making and accepting and bringing this idea to the public. Uh, no. Uh, no. Uh, no. Uh, yes. Uh, no. This is a piece uh, yes. done by a sound artist named Jeff Gordon. Uh, no. And it's simply entitled uh, no. Andy Warhol. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, no. Uh, no. Uh, yes. And it's an hour uh, no. of Warhol just going, uh, uh, no. uh yes, uh no. Uh, no. And in this way, it's very similar uh, to yes. the one-sided interview. Uh, you no. can ask Andy uh, yes. any question, like the Oracle, uh, no. and get an answer no. back from Warhol. Uh, no. Uh, yes. And in a sense, it's the ultimate Warholian statement uh, yes. and kind of uh, the ultimate uh, no. interview. Because to Warhol, it no. really didn't matter what he said. No. He could say, ah, uh, yes, and uh, mean, ah, yes. uh, no. Or he could say, ah, uh, no, and mean, ah, uh, yes. Everything uh, no. was yes, and everything was no to Warhol. It really didn't no. matter. And by uh, yes. being so absolutely uh, no. inarticulate and monosyllabic, he made uh, these... No. Tremendous pronouncements. No. Everyone in the future will be famous no. for 15 minutes. Uh, These yes. kind of almost idiot uh, no. savant, rain yes. man like ideas uh, no. about art that became cultural uh, no. truism. So it's the uh, paradox no. of somebody uh, yes. who wasn't uh, no. articulate that embodied everything that uh, the no. culture stood for. Uh, no. Uh, no. Uh, yes. Uh, no. And that winds up our podcast showing the scope of the interviews that are contained on Ubu Web. From the very serious and the very knowledgeable to the very frivolous and the very conceptual. There's a whole range of interviews, and we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg. There are hours and hours more interviews. You can find this all at UbuWeb at ubu.com. And the audio files are kept in our sound section at ubu.com slash sound. 